0: Hello, welcome to the BMJ podcast about well-being. Today, we'll be thinking about comparisons between the current COVID nineteen crisis and teams working in conflict zones. I'm Abby Rimmer. I'm careers editor at the BMJ, and I have an interest in doctors'
1: well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield. I'm a GP by training, and I have interest in patient safety and quality improvement. Today we'll be speaking to a clinician who has worked in conflict zones and also worked supporting those suffering trauma as a result of their experiences. Abby, I have no idea whether it's fair to, to sort of describe what's going on right now as similar to experiences of those who've worked in conflict zones. What do you think?
0: I think it's a really difficult one. It's, I think we've heard people make those comparisons, but whether or not they're right to is another question and I'm hoping that our interviewee will be able to help us with that. But I do think that people are experiencing things that are very traumatic and things that they might need help to deal with at the end of
1: the pandemic. I think sometimes when people say that, they're thinking about how just unreal this seems, how different to normal and how everything seems to be out of kilter with how it usually is. I think probably that's what some people are guessing at. And I think it's interesting because obviously it's affecting those who are, who are working right in the front lines of the NHS, uh, but it's affecting society more widely. Mm. And from a wellbeing point of view, it might be that
0: there are things that we can learn from very high stress conflict environments that doctors can put
1: to good use at the moment during this very difficult time. Absolutely, and I think that's one of the things that health systems are often criticised for, is not learning both from each other, but also from fields outside health. Um, So personally, I'm really interested to hear from someone who has that broader range of experience.
0: Well, on that note, we're delighted to be joined on the podcast by a clinician who has worked in some extremely challenging circumstances.
2: Good afternoon uh, and thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Hi, my name is uh, Cormac Doyle. As you've alluded to, I have served in military operations. I did 25 years military service, uh, 20 years in the Royal Air Force, getting to the rank of squadron leader, and then transferred to the army for my last five years in service. Uh, I I joined the military in 1991 and since 1993 I've been to every operational theater either as a flight nursery patriot in casualties or as a deployed officer on the ground running field mental health teams or on one occasion I was the officer commanding of the aeromed squadron in Afghanistan so I've got a wealth of experience uh, right across the spectrum both as a deployed on the ground and dealing with people who've had the psychological impact of actually coming back from war and having developed anxiety, depression and the condition most associated with soldiers, post-traumatic stress disorder.
0: Wow. So as you say, you really do have a, a wealth of experience. To start off with, would you mind describing for us what it's like working as a clinician in a, in a war zone?
2: Uh, it's it 's very surreal uh, it is very much unlike what 's actually happening in 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 the peacetime location because when you deploy out in the ground as a clinician, you deploy with all your military training so you and this is a conflict for some you actually deploy, deploy with weapon systems. So you're trained how to use rifles, pistols, and some occasions you, you learn how to throw hand grenades. Uh, you have to have be very savvy and have all your survival skills. So, although you will deploy and see some people in a hospital like, say, Bastion, for example, um, I did spend a lot of time out in the ground and I would have uh, run clinics in very small fobs where maybe 12, 16 men were actually based at a time. So that would involve flying in by helicopter in the middle of, of the hour, in the middle of the night. Um, helicopters, it was tactical flying. We were continuously under threat of being shot down. Uh, and then when you would land in one particular area, you would then do a foot patrol to the next area that wanted to see you. And when you're deploying underground uh, through an area that's described as very kinetic and that there's a high risk of being exposure to uh, small arms fire or indeed exposure to IEDs, an improvised explosive device. It is uh, high octane, uh, very exhilarating, very scary. And very exciting. Uh, and I think that's the balance that you have to look at these type of threatening situations. Uh, and like every situation I'm getting, I get involved in, I, I often ask myself, what did I learn from this and how does it make me a better person?
1: And Cormac, you, you've painted a really vivid picture there of what it's like going to these remote areas and on patrol. But you also mentioned Bastion. What was it like working in the kind of camp hospital?
2: Um, I, I worked in the camp hospital on two occasions. I worked in the camp hospital when it was literally tents and the second time round it'd been built into the most magnificent hospital uh, working in that environment was was it was like working in a uh, a very proactive extremely busy 24 hours a day a e department where it had been cleverly designed so x-ray uh, trauma units operating theaters and wards so were very very close together uh, we were very fortunate, second time round, that the hospital was actually air-conditioned, so that made it a, a lot more pleasant to actually work in. But you were continuously listening to uh, helicopters flying over, you were li- continuously listening to sirens going off. For the times I was at Bastion, Bastion never really came under any direct threat. There was always the chance of, of rockets coming in. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, a lot of military people tell you, to, in some ways we became quite desensitised. If you heard a rocket attack coming in, you either jumped over your patient or you put them on the floor You later until it was actually over. And, and that actually did happen on one occasion when I was actually in Iraq, in the fetal hospital over there. But, uh, yeah, very switched on clinical environment. Uh,
1: and it seems a bit um, ridiculous sometimes to compare that to COVID, but how is that experience similar to what medics are going through at the front line right now?
2: Uh, I think, you know... Um, Kathy, if you'd asked me that three weeks ago, I'd have given you a completely different answer. Uh, and my answer is this is very much the front line. Um, the front line for soldiers was Afghanistan, it was Iraq, that was thousands of miles away. It wasn't affecting this country as such. Yes, there were the, the families of soldiers who deployed who'd be worried about them being killed or being maimed or being injured the front line is now not just the united kingdom actually the front line is the world because the threat we have it's it's a virus and that you know the the work we did in iraq and afghanistan we were fighting against an unknown ent- uh, enemy it was kind of the taliban and and the, uh, the terrorist forces and as you are aware they don't actually have a person uh, um an identity of uniform or flag or or whatever the virus is the very same it's like a, it's like a, that terrorist threat And we have people now going into work in the COVID environment where their levels of adrenaline and their anxiety levels are going to be high. What is different, in some cases, they can do their shift and go home. Or in some cases, they make the decision not to go back to the home environment. And the only thing I can compare that to is during the first Gulf War, RAF pilots from Rammstein would fly from Germany down over over, um, Iraq, drop their payloads, turn the aircraft around and then go home. That's a very, very surreal environment. You know, you drop your kids off to school, you hop in your aircraft, you drop your payload and you come back and you pick your kids up again. And I'm not making light of the situation, but there was one pilot in particular, Pablo Mason, and he was very much affected by getting up in the morning, dropping bombs and then going back to bed at night. Uh, And he tells a very eloquent story about his journey through kind of dealing with that. If we look at what's happening with our doctors or nurses And our clinicians, and not just from the medical perspective, we've got people who work in shops, we've got people who are delivering food, we've got care workers who are going into the vulnerable and lonely at home and so forth. Everybody is at risk of this. And this is why we've got to be very careful about the social distancing. And we're asking people's behaviour to change. So... When you deploy on the ground in a military perspective, all of your training kicks in, but your behaviour does change. You have to be switched on the whole time. You, you can't let things lapse. You look at what's happening back in this environment, we're asking people to change behaviour. We're asking people to witness somebody die and not be able to hold them or stroke them or give them comfort uh, or give them some solace. Uh, I can't even imagine what it's like for that individual dying, wondering, why can't you touch me? Um, and I think if you look, if you're the clinician and you're in that situation, there's lots of information that you have to be able to process. So you're dealing with death on a daily basis and then you're going home. There was an article in one of the newspapers a few days ago where a young doctor was describing how he had done more death certificates in one week than he'd done previously in the year. I mean, uh, that, that's kind of a lot. If you look at the deaths from uh, coronavirus compared to deaths on deployed operations, the deaths we've experienced this country has, has in this country has just outstripped that completely. What is also very different about this and very real, there is not a human being in our nation who is not affected by this. Whether they want to believe what we're saying to them or not, everybody's been affected in some way, shape or form. And I think the comparison with, with the front line in war is quite justifiable because they are permanently in that high octane environment making life or death decisions.
0: That being said, Cormac, are there any strategies that you use in the armed forces to kind of deal with those situations?
2: There is a, a system in the military known as the buddy buddy system. Uh, its it origins kind of goes, the military claim it goes back to 1940, it actually goes back to about 1850. And what happens in, within the team structure? You get teamed up with somebody else who is your your buddy. So, for example, if you are putting on um, uh, your gown for. Uh, self-isolation or are you putting on your gown to work in the COVID environment, you're naturally going to get somebody to check your kit to make sure it's done properly. So the buddy-buddy system, it ensures that nobody gets left out. It makes sure that everybody in team has somebody to identify with. Um, it does eliminate anxiety and stress because you know some, you have somebody who you can depend on. Uh, it ensures that somebody has your back and we, we have a, a terminology that we use in the military, I'll always have your six. And that is the best compliment you can actually give somebody uh because they know that you will literally be looking after them um it also uh, has been proven from from the research that having a buddy buddy system it reduces risks and reduced errors occurring uh in in that environment and it also gives the individual someone who they can talk to now if if you have a clash with your buddy which happens you just get teamed up with somebody else but i think the most important thing about a buddy 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 system is when all this is over and we will get through it, you're probably going to go and have a beer with your buddy or have a coffee with him. And then you can talk about kind of other things. And that's what's really, really important. So buddy-buddy does protect uh, the individual's uh, mental state and it um, ensures and mitigates against the developing of further stress reactions.
1: Thanks, Cormac. It's really interesting to hear about strategies that you've used in the military. What can clinicians working on the front line do to protect themselves and their mental health?
2: I think, first of all, it, it's all right to acknowledge to be scared. If you acknowledge that you're scared and you're frightened, uh, you will activate the primal response inside your body to survive. And and everybody will survive, okay? If you, if you acknowledge we, we have an inherent will to want to live, even in the strong face of adversity. But what clinicians need to be able to do is from the moment they wake up, and I'm sure we've all had this, you wake up and you go, oh my God, it's another day. You need to wake up and ground yourself psychologically very well. So if you wake up, you say, this is my bedroom. This, these are the curtains of my bedroom. That's my mobile telephone. You literally talk yourself through a process of reassuring yourself that you're in a safe environment. Uh, we talk about uh, gratitude in, in the field of psychology and that's very much kind of cognitive reframing of, of positive affirmation. So you're grateful for your fact that you have a family, you're grateful for your fact that your family are, are happy, you're grateful that you have a wife or children or whatever, whatever partnership you're engaged in. Um, and I think if you start having that type of mental approach as soon as you wake in the morning, you're automatically preserving yourself for what's going to happen through the rest of the day. And as I've always said to people, the first thing you should do when you get up in the morning is make your bed. Because no matter how bad your day is, when you come home, your bed is welcoming and it's there and it's ready for you. But there are other things that we can do uh, within our working day. Uh, and it may seem a bit odd to people listening, but when you're walking, be aware of where your foot is going. Um, put your hand in water, feel some ice, feel something different, feel texture. Uh, take deep breaths. You know, savor a scent. If if you know if somebody's wearing some nice perfume, say, you know, that perfume's really nice. And, and there's a very simple five system that you can uh you can do. And one number listen to five different things. So listen for five different sounds. Number four, have a look around at things you can actually physically see. A book, a cup, a window. Look out the window. Look at three things that you can touch. Uh you'll find as I mentioned, I always hold a pen in my hand because it keeps me very grounded. Um, look for two things that you can smell and finally look for something you can taste and you follow that very, very simple process uh, you will keep yourself incredibly grounded
1: And You mentioned fear there Cormac what can clinicians do to help them with that sense of fear?
2: I've, fear is an interpretation of, of what you're seeing or what you're feeling okay? so what might be fearful for you may not be fearful for me and I always say to people if you have a fear but somebody else doesn't ask them why don't they have it and sometimes when you've got high levels of stress, it's, it's your interpretation of a situation that will define whether it's going to be pleasurable or whether it's going to be stressful and fearful. But if you do acknowledge it's fearful and you do feel the fear, acknowledge it is the very, very first important step you have to take. Acknowledge it's there for a reason. It's there for the fight or flight response. It's how you manage it afterwards that's important best way to manage that type of fear response is to take deep breath, breathe in and breathe out. Uh, and I've, as, as I've been saying to clinicians who I'm dealing with around the world, it's very important in your working day to take 20 minutes out to sit down and relax and reflect or do some breathing exercises or listening to some bilateral music. Fear can be managed easily once it's acknowledged. It's when you don't acknowledge it and where you start making rash decisions that's where an issue then comes in because your flight response will actually kick in. So again, keeping yourself grounded. Uh, and we all know, I mean, we've all done exams. We know what it's like to have the fear of actually going into an exam. So how do you do? We actually keep yourself grounded and you keep yourself focused. Um, and I think the important thing is also in your working day is to ensure that you have that important break. It's absolutely essential. The, the human body can go 120 days without taking a break before psychological and physiological degradation occurs. Um, I would like to think that people working in this environment won't have to go that long without having a break. It's very important that if you are a clinician who is a leader, you ensure that your team have a break. And and bearing in mind that as a leader, you've also got to demonstrate that if you're expecting them to have a break, you have to take a break too. That's really important. Processing information is also a key to dealing with fear because... You can encounter an environment, and I've done this on numerous um, deployments, you get involved in a situation that was fearful, and then you think about it afterwards, and then you suddenly realize, actually, yeah, it was dangerous, it was risky, but you know something, it could have been worse, and it wasn't. So I think it's all about kind of the processing of information. And if you go back to the buddy-buddy system that I mentioned earlier on, if you can talk to somebody about actually having that fear, you might find, you know something, I've got the same I remember going into a patrol once, and my pulse rate went up to 188. Uh, and we were about to go underground, on the ground, and we were told it was going to be very kinetic. Uh, and there was a young soldier standing beside me, and he took his pulse. And his pulse was 136. And his interpretation was, don't worry, boss, I'll look after you. And, and this is what's going to happen in the COVID environment. Y- you are going to see uh, leaders who will succumb to stress, you will see the most unassuming characters step up to the mark and develop such amazing leadership. I mean, and and I've seen this happen time and time again. But I think also for the whole concept of fear is people should keep a diary. They should keep a diary because, you know, in 20 years' time, we will be talking about this pandemic from a historical perspective, hopefully. By having your diary, you can reflect back on what you actually went through. But for clinicians, doctors and nurses... Can you imagine going to your next appraisal and they were saying, so how was your last six months? And you hand them a diary and go, well, here it is. Uh, let's Let's re- let's reflect on this, because what we are experiencing at the moment is changing human behaviour. And we're being asked to go against our natural reaction to deal with things like to deal with fear and so forth.
0: Um, you obviously work with people who've experienced trauma. And I wonder whether you think once this pandemic is over, we'll see clinicians who have experienced the same kind of trauma that you see in
2: soldiers? I think inevitably it's going to happen. Uh, there is some research that came out following the SARS of 2003, 2004. Um, two, two different studies said uh, clinicians would develop, uh, there was a risk of between 19 and 40% of clinicians developing post traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and we have to take the definition of what post traumatic disorder is in context. It's kind of being involved in a situation where you're witnessing or being exposed to or a threat of death. So we have clinicians who are going to be witnessing death on a daily basis. Put that in context, that is their working environment. What is different is the volume of death that they're actually experiencing. So I I think some way down the line, yes, we we will see an emergence. Uh, King's College uh, always say that uh, PTSD levels among civilian population runs about six and a half percent. I think what we're experiencing is very unique. Uh, I would not like to predict what that will be in, in a few years' time. There will be some people who are already emotionally vulnerable before going into this environment. Um, so so they will be at a higher risk of developing illness. On the flip side, I'm dealing with people at the moment who've had anxiety before. I'm suddenly being told by the government I've got to stay in for the last 20 years of my life. I've never wanted to go out. And they've done things like volunteer to work for the NHS. Uh, they have become drivers. They've gone around visiting people. I mean, I've seen the most remarkable changes. So they're taking something incredibly negative and, and turning into a, a positive. I think how clinicians will negate against development of mental illness is having the buddy-buddy system. It's normalising themselves when they go home. That's absolutely important. If they're not going home, but they're using tele. Um, phoning family I would say you switch that to Skype see the person's face if you're phoning your wife who you haven't seen in three or four weeks get her to show you around the house let her see what's happening in the back garden let the kids do a play for you Uh, and one of the questions is you know what can the family do well actually I think it's what it's what the clinician going home can do um in in all of my years of deployment I've never told my family what I've been through do you know why they didn't need to know And I think, you do that for two reasons. One, you've got to protect those loved ones at home, and that's fundamentally important. But also, we had a very good buddy-buddy system. And we would sit down, and uh, I remember getting to one particular place long after we got back from deployment, and we sat down and had some beers. Uh, And we talked about everything, except what actually happened happened on deployment. Uh, And that was just a very healthy approach, just sitting down and and chatting. But I think, um, yeah, I I think, you know, the stats will come out at some stage. I, I know there's a lot of, news in the newspapers, that it's going to be terrible, lots of people are going to be affected. I think everybody just might be surprised. If you look at how this culture has changed in the last six weeks, neighbours are talking to neighbours never spoke before. We have an entire nation that comes out at night time and they applaud the NHS and the, and the people in the shops and the drivers and the ambulance drivers and people going out... So I think that positivity is something that we need to be reporting more of in the newspapers. There are some reporters at the moment, and you have to admit, they're pretty embarrassing the way they're actually reporting stories. It's, it's, it, literally, it's a disgrace. Um, there is so much good going on that just does not get recorded. Uh, I mean, Captain Tom and his, his um, 100 laps, what an amazing, uplifting story. He's raised all of this money and then people are arguing over how the money is going to be spent.
1: What's your advice, Cormac, about how people should consume information and news and things like that in the context of the pandemic?
2: Um, I would recommend that if, if you enjoy the news, uh, one, be careful what news channel you're going to listen to. Uh, I tend to listen to the news twice a day, 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening. That's it. Um, I have stopped buying newspapers because they are completely and totally misreporting a lot of stuff. My, my advice even further than that is it's what you expose your children to. Uh, don't go in and talk doom and gloom. They're too young. They can't process the information. They don't need to know. Um, my daughter is 32. I've got grandchildren. I haven't seen them in two months, uh, and I probably won't see them until sometime in July. Um, so when I'm not talking to people like you or doing some work with clinicians or, uh, literally around the world, um, I, I work in a prison. Uh, I never tell anybody what actually happens in the prison for two reasons. One, they don't need to know. And secondly, I don't want to transfer my anxiety onto somebody else. What I will tell you is something that's very interesting about behavioural changes. One particular prison I work in, uh, in the last six weeks, there's been absolutely no trouble in the prison whatsoever. And the guilt that some prisoners have over the fact that they're incarcerated when their loved ones are in hospital and dying, it's been quite interesting to see very hardened men going... What am I doing in this environment? And I think, I think it's going to affect change everywhere. To be honest,
0: cool, Matt. Can I ask you something that I've just just thought of? You talked about not being able to see your daughter, and I similarly, am, I'm not able to see my sister for a, a good few months now because she's a, a, medic. And I just wondered if there's anything that you learnt from deployment with the armed forces where you again couldn't see family and friends that maybe would be useful for clinicians at the moment.
2: Yeah. Um, I went on one particular deployment. It was meant to be three months, ended up being seven months. And I didn't see my family for that period of time. What was important was communication. And although you can't physically see your sister, you can talk to her. You can text her messages. And you can make plans for the future. And making plans for the future is very, very important. So you can say to your sister, Jo, when this is gone, maybe Christmas, we might go shopping to New York. Well, that's if Trump actually lets us back into the country. But it is very important that you make plans for the future. And when you make a plan that's, that has an end, that has a future point, it means that you're seeing beyond what you're actually going through at the moment. Because we will all get through this. And, Abby, I'm sure you'd rather not see your sister knowing that she's safe rather than oh, seeing certainly. your sister and at risk. And, and we need to put all of this in context. This is all about risk. I mean, I miss my daughter. I miss my grandkids. You know, I'm, I am the granddad that goes and causes complete and total chaos in the house and then say to my daughter, justice is well served because I remember what you were like as a child. And I miss doing that, but she keeps me updated the whole time with photographs, videos. And although we, you, you can't see your sister, you've got communications and you would be able to make contact. And I would suggest you do it on a regular basis as well. Um, one thing I've stopped doing is I no longer phone people. I now Skype everybody. I want to be able to see them. Uh, and there are a few friends during the week, and we, we all get together on Skype. We all make a cup of tea, and we sit down and we chat for 15 minutes. And although you can't see your sister, think of something you used to do with your sister. I know a cup of tea. I know one girl who does a makeup night. So she sits down with her friends, and they all sit there doing make over Skype or, or, or uh, WhatsApp. And, and it's very important, again, to, to do things like that.
1: We talked about um, processing and how it's important to be able to process all this stuff, either with a buddy, but also so that you don't transfer some of your own fear and anxiety home to your loved ones who are already worried about you. What other ways can you help process all of this that's going on?
2: Um, there is a, a, a certain type of music you to listen to called bilateral music. And bilateral music was created by a doctor in America by the name of uh, Dr. Rand. David Grant. And, and what it does, it, it's very relaxing music, and it, when you listen to it through headphones, it has to be through headphones, you will literally hear a few seconds in your left ear and a few seconds in your right ear. And, and that actually reduces your anxiety levels inside your brain. So if you're suffering from high anxiety, you'll be producing masses of beat activity. And what you need to be producing is kind of delta activity, which keeps you nice and relaxed. Sitting down and listening to this music 20 minutes, twice a day, is life-changing. Whether, whether you're going through a pandemic or not, it is very much life-changing. I've done work with students previously. i work worked with student nurses. I've worked with student doctors. And when you explain to them that you're going to take 20 minutes a day to listen to some music, they look at you like you've got horns in your head. And then the phone you the next day and go, do you know something? I slept last night. Uh, my concentration is better. My motivation is up. And also when you want to process information, it's you're trying to make sense of something, and let's be honest, as my partner said to me, this is a complete and total bonkers environment. Okay, so trying to process is, it will be difficult, but if you acknowledge it's going to be difficult, get what the process then gets easier. But by sitting down and taking time to listen to that music will make a big difference. As I've said, there's a there's a consultant in London. So he goes home in the evening after his busy day. He's still with his family. Uh, and they all sit down and put on their headphones. And they kind of take 20 minutes as a family, sitting down, listening to music. And I, I'd i never even thought of that before. I think, what a brilliant way. Because for 20 minutes, you're all doing the same activity. You're all relaxing. You're very much at ease. Your kids are going to feel safe. And again, because I, I, I'm a big believer in kind of promoting children's mental health. We have to protect our children from all of the stuff that's going around, not from just from COVID, but from all the unnecessary reporting that's going on on social media and in the news. And, and again, having the buddy-buddy system. Uh, you might not be able to pro something that's happened, but by talking out with your buddy, they might make that one statement and go, never thought of looking at it like that. Um, we know the end of life is very difficult. Um, I personally have never got used to end of life. Uh, and I don't think I would ever want to get used, because I think if you get used to it, your your compassion goes. But I think sometimes when you're in a situation where you've got to make a decision as to whether someone continues with treatment or not, as long as you can hand on heart, and be at peace knowing you've made the right decision at the right time, that's going to be important. And I'd, be, I'd just like to go back to one thing you said earlier on about, about clinicians and, and mental health. Mark my word, the big question will be, by the end of the year, will be PPE. That will be a big driver for lots of people. I deployed to Iraq where we had insufficient body armour. We had um, soft top cover wagons. We still went out and did our job. uh, and, And the reason why we did it was we would anyway. And I think despite all the negativity coming out about doctors and nurses complaining, I think the majority of doctors and nurses are just getting on with it and doing it because that's the way we're built. Um, we are built to go in and deal with adversity. Uh, we're we are designed and built to go in and deal with, with trauma and threat and, and, and deal with it. Um, and again, you know, we will hear in years to come the most amazing stories from doctors and nurses and healthcare workers and cleaners and hospitals of stuff that's actually happened. We will hear we will hear of novel ways they've come up with of adapting PPE, of adapting how care is delivered in this type of environment. And I, I just think and, and hope that if people do keep a diary, all this information gets kind of processed properly by the authorities. So heaven forbid if this was ever, ever to happen again, we'd have a better handle on it.
1: Is there a last message, Cormac, that you would like to give to clinicians?
2: Yeah, I think it, it, it's a very simple one. Um, don't be afraid to recognise that you're going to fail at some part of this. It is, it is part of the process. But through failing, you will learn. And you will learn and you will pass on the information. Don't be afraid to try something different. Um, the amount of times I personally, and I've seen other clinicians, do something completely outside the guidelines and the policies and the procedures that has such a positive result... It's really incredible and I think never doubt that you're not going to get through this because we are going to get through it. We are going to learn. We will mourn the people who we can't mourn properly and we will do that in time. But we'll also celebrate the fact that we have saved thousands upon thousands of lives and we literally are saving the nation. You know, don't worry about your mortgage. Don't worry about you, Caroline. Do you know something? It is not important. What is important is the sanctity of life. And if we have that complete focus on what we're trying to do, do you know something? We will leave this pandemic as a better nation and as a better world. And I think humanity is going to be better off
0: Well, I thought that was really interesting. I really like Cormac's point about the importance of making bre- taking breaks and leaders role modelling those breaks, so taking those breaks as well. And also I thought his point about not bringing the stress home was really interesting, because I imagine that's actually quite hard to do if you're a clinician on the front line.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think... I'm not sure if I entirely agree I think you have to be able to decompress somehow and sometimes I I thought the buddy buddy system sounded fantastic I love the idea of having an allocated colleague who you know is just really going to understand your perspective and what you're going through and you can decompress with them but I think also it's good to have that perspective from someone who's slightly removed from the situation so I think finding ways to talk to your um, loved ones or your partner or your friends but in a way that allows them allows you to share the burden without sharing all the kind of emotional load i think that's going to be the sort of line to tread and i don't have an answer to how you do that but i think it's something to reflect on and to do so consciously and thoughtfully absolutely well that's all we've got time for a huge thanks to
0: major Cormac mcdorff for coming on the podcast
1: yeah, so interesting. And um, check us out on social media. We're at BMJ Latest on Twitter, or you can join the BMJ Wellbeing Group on Facebook. And we'd really like to hear your ideas for what we might cover later on in the season. We'll also post a link to
0: the bilateral stimulation music that Cormac mentioned. Best enjoyed using headphones, and we're going to play out with one of those compositions. So until next time, it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye.